Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Jamie Woodcock, who's a fellow at the London School of Economics, about his new book, Working the Phones, Control and Resistance in Call Centres. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to speak about the book. It's, uh, it's great to have you on to talk about the book because it's so important. Um, you know, it's a really well-timed book and it speaks to not just the kind of the reality of contemporary work in contemporary society, but really specific kind of work. Um, and I guess we'll kind of unpack that over the course of the conversation. Before that, though, it'd probably be good to give the listeners a sense of kind of where the book has come from. Um, and I guess kind of your your overall academic interest that led you to embed yourself in a call centre and, and do a, a workers' inquiry about uh, working the phones. So my, my overriding academic interest is about work. Um, so why do people work? Where do they work? Who do they work with? Uh, what do they do when they're working? And this project, uh, the project behind the book, began as a PhD project. So I thought I had some time, you know, to really focus on, on one kind of work, to try and unpack what was happening in that, that kind of work, and to explore particularly how do people resist and hopefully organize in that kind of work. And, you know, at the beginning of the PhD, I was kind of thinking, you know, I could pick virtually anything to do. Um, I mean, obviously, I would have to have, uh, you know, the, 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 the requirements to be able to do that. But I, what I particularly wanted to look at was stressful, low-paid, and badly organized work to try and go through some of the arguments about, uh, you know, the labor process and uh, resistance today. And it, it seemed obvious to me that it would be some kind of service work. Um, and eventually I settled on, on call centers, partly because, you know, I think they have become emblematic of the shift from, you know, an economy dominated by manufacturing to one dominated by service work. So although the, the case study, you know, is relatively narrow as it's call centers, which are quite specific, I think it says or allows you to explore and unpack uh, quite broadly from that to, to kind of experiences more generally in, in, in the service industries. Yeah, I mean, the, the book totally does that uh, really perfectly, actually, and, and moves from, you know, very much your kind of ethnographically informed experiences of the call centre right the way through to how contemporary capitalism is organised, and as you said, you know, the kind of labour processes underpinning that organisation. I'm quite interested, you know, you mentioned the kind of stressfulness, low pay, it's interesting that, you know, the call centre might be a kind of site for the knowledge economy, you know, for a uh, move away from kind of industrial production. But the book, you know, paints a much more kind of um, critical and bleak picture. So it'd be good to give a sense of kind of like, what are we talking about here? What What is this thing, the, the call centre? So the, the first example uh, that I want to give about this is, you know, whenever I talk about this, uh, I'm, I'm always keen to stress that I focus particularly on uh, high volume sales, uh, which is a particular kind of call center uh, in which there are the highest targets, uh, you know, the most stressful experience, uh, and often, you know, the, the the payment is based on on results. And the reason I think that this is the the kind of the aspect of call centers to focus on is this is where a lot of the technologies and practices of management are developed at the kind of sharpest point uh, uh, of this kind of process. 
And you know, it's certainly true that there are smaller uh, or more customer service focused call centers that are perhaps less stressful. But I think it's from that experience that management has in organizing the high pressure sales that these methods become spread out more broadly within call centers and then spread out more broadly within uh, within work uh, in general. And I think it's also worth noting that uh, this the, the call centers that I worked in were based in London uh, and that introduces a number of dynamics that you might not find elsewhere in the UK. Um, and I think... You know, when you go to the north of England, for example, and you find call centers built in the in the buildings of old industrial, you know, coal mines or steel factories or so on, this repurposing almost directly of of manufacturing to service work, it's not often combined with lots of similar low paid jobs like you might have in London. So the kind of the ability to move between different call centers or different kinds of work is, is much more common in, in in London and the south of England. Um, but I think those kind of general dynamics from the ethnography, you know, still work uh, across the UK. And I think, you know, call centers are incredibly international. Um, so having spoken with, with colleagues and, and with call center workers elsewhere, lots of these dynamics uh, are, are the same, uh, even if you leave the borders of England. I mean, obviously that prompts the question, what are these dynamics then? Because, you know, you, you mentioned the kind of, I suppose, the specificness of the type of call center that you're in, but also the the general relevance and the spread of the techniques um, that went on in that call center. So some of these are surveillance metrics, emotional labor, casualized workforces. I wonder if you could sketch a kind of like a flavor of the management techniques that characterize the uh, the call center you were you were studying. Yeah. So so kind of if you think about a call center at, it, at its core, a call center is just a collection of people and telephones. You know, working in the same environment, but being able to call people, you know, throughout a shift. And in the book, I talk about one of the key moments being the development of uh, integrated computer and telephone technologies. Uh, so the nature of the work that you're doing, calling people, trying to make a sale, means that the labor process has quite a clear and measurable output. So you can time to the second how long a call takes how long it takes you to make the next call, exactly how many sales you're making. And it means that in sales call centers, you can then develop a quite sophisticated apparatus of, of electronic surveillance and control. And this kind of method of timing, of introducing metrics, is almost universal in call centers. But on its own, just measuring how long people are spending on the call, how many sales they make at the end, just those kind of quantitative aspects would make only using those would make it very, very hard to manage a call center because ultimately, uh, as one of my colleagues, uh, Ender Brophy has, has written about it's language that's being put to work in call centers. You know, it's the, the emotional labor, the effective labor of convincing somebody to part with money only using your, your voice. And so it's actually quite difficult to manage that. You know, in the example of the call center that I worked in, how do you convince somebody to buy life insurance? You know, there's not going to be one way that you can, you can, uh, you know, negotiate and, and convince somebody. So you end up with these qualitative aspects that are very hard to measure. You know, how do you measure the effectiveness of a joke, for example? Um, and it's that tension that I think carries on through call centers. 
of hard quantitative targets and then these much more difficult qualitative aspects uh, that are very hard to manage. And then the other thing as well, like the, I guess the kind of really unique thing about the book, because uh, you mentioned you know, that there's kind of lots of people writing about metrics and, and the interaction with emotional or effective labor and how you measure stuff and things like that. But, but the kind of like the unique thing about your book is this workers inquiry method. And I was really fascinated by this because I think you're quite honest in the book about um, what worked and what didn't, you know, the kind of like uh, strengths and weaknesses um, of the approach. So I wonder if you could give us a, a sense of like what the workers inquiry is and, and I guess how you applied it um, to your call center. Yeah, so the the method takes inspiration from uh, a tradition of uh, of Marxist research that traces back to to Marx's own work, and in this, you know, towards the end of Marx's life, he 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 wanted to carry out a, a survey that he called a workers' inquiry with groups of workers. Now, his survey had you know over a hundred questions. There's no results of uh, you know no evidence that, that he ever had any responses to it, but he set in motion this kind of idea that after having written capital and so on the figure of the worker is kind of missing uh, and that he wanted to to find some way to carry out research with workers in which they could describe their own conditions as part of the, the project to overcome them and in the early part of the book I kind of trace this tradition of trying to do this kind of research in an academic context it's obviously going to have a particular output. So you would try and do something to produce a text or, or, or to produce an article. But what I liked about the idea was trying to combine it with a more kind of sociological and ethnographic approach. Because, you know, most of us have no experience of what the work of call centers is like. You know, we might hear them, you know, we might you know, have that sense of annoyance when we're being called. That's the contact most of us have. The actual experience and feelings and... Uh, and processes behind that are very difficult to access. Now, part of the problem with doing workplace research today is it's very difficult to get access. Um, and so for me, it was a, a decision to go undercover, which is not an easy decision to make in, in the contemporary university. Um, but without doing that, without choosing to go and do the work myself, it would have been very difficult to, to find out what was really happening in, in, in a call center. You know, partly because there's a reluctance from managers to to let people in to do critical research. Um, so I spent you know six months following the process that, that that people would anyone else who got the job you know applying online, being sent to a call center and so on. And it had successes and it had failures because ultimately uh, my intention was to try and co-research with people who were were in the call center. So that's a difficult process to to go through you know lots of people don't want to write or read about call centers when they've been working in them all day it's funny that that kind of yeah i suppose the uh the limited audience for a for a workers inquiry uh, yeah. and i think talking about uh, your experiences will you know usefully illustrate why why that might be i, I suppose the place to kick off and this you know is the kind of uh, the meat of the book is the sense of a kind of like life in the call center and you've, you know, kind of gestured to the, I suppose, the techniques of organization. Um, but maybe you could give some specific examples about say the script you're expected to follow, you know, the kind of experience you'd had on the calls, both, you know, the kind of, uh, very negative, uh, experiences 
Um, and then, you know, the more kind of, I suppose, complex negotiations that went on with making a sale and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I can still remember the script um, word for word, and it's been quite a while since I... <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, a worry. Is that still kind of ingrained into... Yeah, it's it's funny. It's one of those things you can't remember, and the moment you think about it, you can almost see the words uh, kind of reappearing because, as you say, it's entirely scripted encounter. So every phone call begins, you know, it opens up a page. It tells you how to open the conversation. It puts in the person's name and so on. But the, I guess one of the challenges of, you know, selling insurance or, or, or whatever it is you're selling is if you were to just read out that script, I can't think you would make any sales at all. And so you end up with this tension that you're doing something where a lot of the automate, you know, a lot of it has become automated. You know, the, the, the exact uh, phrasing and so on is written down. But then you're expected to move away from the script at various points. And so with selling life insurance, this was about, you know, collecting details of customers. You know, how many children did they have? What kind of work did they do? Um, you know, what? you know, essentially what kind of information could you use later on to leverage them into buying life insurance? And at various points, you know, I made enough sales to be to be kept on. And at other points, I, I really struggled because you start to treat people like a puzzle. You know, what's their what's their weakness going to be? How are you going to find a way to convince them? But this is also supplemented with the use of humor. Because, you know, lots of people don't expect that somebody is going to make jokes while they're talking about something as, you know, anodyne as, uh, as life insurance. So to give you a couple of examples of this, there are two places where everybody is expected to make jokes. Uh, and the, the first is you, you have to confirm a number of details about people being residents of the UK for a certain amount of time per year. And this is for tax purposes. And you'll say you're told to make a joke around this. Now, there's a risk in making jokes because they could go wrong. Uh, somebody might not find them funny. So inevitably, everybody makes the same joke, which is, you know, do you spend this amount of time in the UK? You say, yes, you know, I do. You say, ah, so no long holidays planned this year. Now, for the customer, this is a funny moment. They've been going through dry details and they get this, this kind of joke. For the call center worker, you get to relive that in every single call, making this joke, you know, putting your own canned laughter in. And it's through these kind of moments of affects, of, of trying to elicit uh, an experience from people that you start building up towards the sale. Um, and this requires, you know, not only keeping the right tone of voice, but, you know, enjoying that joke with them again and again and again, with the hope of later getting their, their direct debit details. What, what's interesting, I guess, is the kind of, yeah, so I'm just thinking because like, that kind of sense of, you know, jokes and, you know, the kind of going off script, that is, I guess, a kind of moment where you had a bit of control over the discussion, whilst at the same time you're being really closely monitored. Um, and you talk about, you know, kind of specific, I suppose, you know, kind of moments of control um, and techniques of control. Now, some of those, you know, you kind of um, talk about in, the second chapter when you know you're talking through the idea of how people get motivated but also there's you know the kind of sense of um this idea about you know a kind of panoptic space of the call center so i wonder if you could say a bit about the experience of you know trying to kind of engage and make people laugh and you know break up the monotony of uh the script 
whilst at the same time being subject to you know really close and tight tight monitoring. Yeah. So to to explain a bit more about the extent of the monitoring, um, you're aware that you're being monitored the moment you work in, walk into the call center. Uh, you have to lock your mobile phone away off the call center floor. Uh, you're under you know under cameras. The moment you log in, every action you take is is being timed uh, to the second. So if you don't start calling straight away, if you spend longer than five seconds between calls, it's automatically flagged uh, to the supervisor. Um, and so you, you're aware that every action you're doing uh, is, is being monitored. But more than that, the, the, the reduction in cost of storage technology means that every single call is recorded, um, which is justified in terms of this means you can review them afterwards, you can find out where you, you went wrong. But it also is done because the, uh, the the phone call is the binding contract with the customer. Um, and so supervisors would regularly explain that they could call up any of your phone calls you'd ever made uh, and go through them with you. And often during the training periods, you would, you know, you'd go and sit in a room away from the call center and, and they would call, you know, call up a number of your, your previous calls, you know, make you dissect them. Why did you say this bit here? Why didn't you push harder here? But it also gives this feeling of a kind of, you know, it's almost like a sort of Damocles hanging above you is I'm sure that I made enough mistakes that if they dug through, uh, if they wanted to fire me and they went through my records, they could find enough points where I had, you know, breached some kind of requirement or regulation and could fire me on the spot for doing that. Um, and this makes the moments where you kind of move away from the script, they, they kind of become scripted in their own way. You know, you make the same joke because you don't want to risk losing that opportunity to sell and you know to give you an example of this the the second joke that everybody uses is um about whether you pay your taxes in the uk uh, and the, the joke is to say oh there's no escaping that then is there uh, which people find funny um on the other end of the phone and at the time i started adding unless you're vodafone because there was a big scandal at the time uh, which customers found really really funny you know this was completely unexpected on the phone uh, lots of people were angry about Vodafone being given this huge tax break. Um, but a supervisor had been going through my calls and heard me saying this and came over and said, you absolutely cannot do that. Uh, that's kind of beyond the bounds. So there were, were definitely rules on what you could or, or, or couldn't do. But often because of the topic, you know, life insurance is about death. Um, you know, that's what you're trying to talk to people about, essentially. So joking is a difficult thing to do in that context. And it means that you often deal with some very, very difficult and stressful phone calls. Um, so to give you an example, I a number of these examples in the book, and I feel like they will stay with me kind of forever. Uh, one of which being calling somebody uh, who was waiting to have dialysis in a hospital. And they wouldn't say that they wanted the phone call to end, which is a rule that you have in the call center. You can't end the phone call without them explicitly saying so. And having this person kind of breaking down on the phone and a supervisor listening in live to the phone call, coming over and saying, you know, this is your phone call that you know, they know about death. They're very ill. And feeling like you're trapped in that situation where all I wanted to say to that person is, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, I really hope, you know, things get better for you. But instead, you're monitored to the extent where you feel like you have to keep asking. Um, and in that bad example, I, I, I apologized and hung up the phone and, and had a disciplinary call, uh, a disciplinary meeting for not following the call center rules. So it's, it's these kind of things that are 
incredibly difficult and stressful, but then you only have five seconds until the next call starts. So there's really no opportunity to kind of recover from it. I'm sort of glad you mentioned that particularly Greer instance. I mean, it's one that stands out um, in the book because that might be quite a nice moment to pivot to, I guess, what's the kind of second half of the book, which although has a similar kind of uh, pessimism, particularly when, when it comes to the kind of complexities of, of changing these, these institutions and these organizations, does have a bit more, I suppose, hope and optimism. And this is because of the idea of resistance that the book introduces. So what are we talking about when we think about resistance in, in a call center context? So at its core, I, my understanding of resistance is that at work, uh, work is a process in which people sell their time to somebody else. And there's a difference in uh, what each party wants to get from that. The, the buyer wants to get the maximum from that time. You know, the most, in the case of call centers, the most sales, the most you know, emotional labor, the most attention during that time. And that's not in the interest of the people who've sold their time. And so from that kind of labor process, understanding and resistance, I firmly believe that there is, there is always some kind of resistance at work. You know, it might be very obvious. It might be very, very subtle. Uh, and that was one of the things that I wanted to uncover. You know, part of the reason for, for working on the call center floor was to try and uncover those you know, undercover or underground or micro practices of resistance. And, you know, this took a while to start finding them. You know, the first day you, you don't notice these things because you're, you're too worried about making sales or you're trying to still trying to learn the ropes. But the process of being there and doing that work meant that not only did you begin to notice things that were happening, but you also start to take part in them yourself because they are ways to deal with the stress of the work ways to deal with how you're treated by supervisors and so on. And in the book, I use uh, Mulholland's categorization of a number of moments of resistance that she found in, in, in call centers. And I think the most important of these are what she calls scamming, which is work avoidance. Um, and so to give you a couple of examples of this, you know, we never ever discuss this as workers in the call center. But the buzz session at the beginning, which is meant to motivate you for the shift ahead, you know, we collectively try to extend these in every shift. So it could be each person asked a question one after another to ensure that we got five or ten minutes away from the, 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 the phones. And these felt like victories. You know, that could be two phone calls you didn't have to do. Um, there were moments on the call center floor where there would be problems with the, the, the computers. And if you, if nobody reported it, you could pretend that you were making phone calls and, and have a bit of time off. And these would be hard to notice if you weren't there. But what I would say, you know, the other two moments that she talks about smoking. So any moments away from the call center floor where people vent and, and begin the, the kind of embryonic forms of organizing. You know, these are, are fairly typical in lots of workplaces. The, the break time is always a, a moment for, for these kinds of things. But leaving in call centers is such a huge part of how I would categorize the resistance. Many call centers have turnovers of, uh, as high as 50% a month. And this is often seen as a kind of a reason why you can't organize, that resistance isn't taking place, people just run away. And in the book, I try to talk about this running away from work as actually being quite close to a strike. There's just no intention of coming back, no 
no kind of understanding of what demands it would take to bring people back. And so I try and turn our understanding of these kind of call centers with huge turnover rather than being places where workers aren't expressing agency and there isn't resistance to places that are full of resistance, but it's just not, it's not becoming organized or, or, or sustainable. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's obviously a sort of an implication for organizing if one of the kind of main modes of resistance is effectively to kind of refuse work, you know, to just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Um, and that's obviously one of the kind of big um, struggles that the book um, documents. And I mean, it, it might be a bit unfair to kind of characterize it as, as pessimistic, but I think there is quite a, um, quite a realism in your discussion of, of the limits and challenges of, of organizing in a, in a call center. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I, I thought was interesting to think about is the role of contemporary trade unionism. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of trade unionists after the publication of the book. And it's interesting the reception that people have to it. Because, you know, I've been a trade unionist since I started working. Uh, you know, I, I'm still a trade unionist. But there are serious problems with trade unionism in the UK. You know, the call centers, some of them are unionized. Um, ones that came, you know, the union came over, you know, when the call center was set up, perhaps in banking or so on. But in general, there is no attempt at kind of shop floor level organizing in call centers. And you can understand why this is the case. You know, why, if you're a trade union official in a union with falling membership, would you spend resources recruiting workers who might might well be in another job in two weeks or three weeks or, or, or a month? And so instead, what I thought important argument to try and make was what other kinds of organization could you see forming in this context that could be successful? Um, and so we experimented with organizing, you know, we started meeting after work, we started talking about, uh, about how, how we could go beyond just trying to eke out the breaks and so on. Um, but it was a very difficult process. You know, by the end, you know, everybody else had left who I started with because they didn't have this ulterior motive of, of doing research to be there. And so instead, I, what I tried to use these moments for was to, to talk to people about ideas on how we could organize for the book, but also to see that for many, for many people, having an experiment with organizing in one workplace doesn't end when they leave to go somewhere else. You know, maybe they take that experience with them somewhere else. Maybe at the next job they say, I don't need to be talked to like that by a supervisor or, you know, we do have a, a right to longer breaks or, or whatever it is, because there are examples historically where union organization has worked when it, there's a high turnover. You know, you can think of mining and industrial work in the US, for example. You know, there are periods where the IWW successfully organized across different workplaces. So there are different models. And I guess the book is an argument about the need for, for creativity and experimentation in, in, in organizing at work. What do you think of the, the sort of, I guess, the kind of limitations of the approach? I mean, we should say we've kind of barely scratched the surface of the rich detail in the book, including you know, these kind of really insane tropes from media about, you know, how you sell stuff to people, the kind of sexist and highly gendered forms of aggression, you know, these, these sorts of things. And then, um, you know, we get this from like Wolf of Wall Street through to Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and you mentioned these things in the book. There's also, you know, a kind of very rich sort of theoretical reflection at the end of each chapter that brings in some of the um, contemporary theories and theorists that, that are important to the book. 
But one of the things that I really liked was that kind of moment of reflection at the end of the book. You know, usually a book ends with more research needed, but yours ended with more kind of moments of, of actually some things worked, some things didn't. Um, and it'd be interested to kind of reflect on, on that, I think. Yeah, so uh, I, I thought that the opportunity to have that moment of reflection um, was important for the book because, you know, and thank you for, for, for the comments about the, the introduction of the material at the, at the end of the chapters and so on, because what's nice about ethnography is that ability to do a narrative account, you know, to have that story that's being told, which you can then weave in other elements. And for me, it felt like a reflection at the end was the natural or at least best placed conclusion to a project like this, because, you know, in the Italian uh, workerist kind of body of work on, on, on workers' inquiry, they talk about two different kinds of, of inquiries. And I see mine as being very much what they would have called a, a workers' inquiry from above. Uh, where you try to gain access to a workplace, you don't know workers before, and you try to do this kind of initial gathering of information that also involves meeting people who do that kind of work with the intention to try and move to what they would have called a workers' inquiry from below or a kind of co-research. And, you know, the limitations of, of doing this as a PhD project means you have a certain timescale, you have to produce a particular form at the end, you know, the, the, the written thesis. And that means at some point you have to exit the field and you have to start writing up, um, which introduces limitations for how, how successful it could be as an inquiry that not only describes the conditions, but also plays a part in people trying to transform them. And so I, my kind of idea with the book was, you know, the, the book is thoroughly rewritten from the, the, the PhD because I wanted it to be accessible enough that people who do this kind of work might want to read it and might take some inspiration about how things like this can make work, well, for a start, more interesting because you're trying to figure out aspects of it to figure out how to go beyond them, but might also inspire other people to take up these kind of projects that perhaps don't have to end after six months that could go longer and could, could, could do more. Is that what you're kind of working through at the moment, or have you got a sort of a new, a new site for, uh, for academic research? So, and this is the kind of, uh, you know, the, you have this this moment after your PhD where you think, you know, am I ever going to get to do a bit of research that that kind of big again? And I, I think, you know, once I started teaching and you know working a number of academic jobs at the same time in London, it would be difficult now to take a full six months out to do a project like this again. Uh, but I was lucky enough last year uh, to be introduced to uh, a number of delivery riders just before they had their strike in, in London. And so now I'm trying to experiment more with the kind of co-research where I'm not actually going in and doing the work, um, but trying to understand that through discussions and, and collaboration with, uh, for example, delivery drivers and, and more recently Uber drivers. And one of the outputs from this, which I'm, you know, I'm really excited to, to have published, which should be out in the next couple of weeks, is something I, I co-wrote with a delivery driver. Um, because ultimately, you know, they know much better how the work is organized already because they've been doing it for, for a year or two. Um, and part of that was experimenting with data collection. So they self-tracked how they were riding around the city, you know, took photographs of the key points and so on but allowed me then to, to talk through 
and introduced, well, actually, you know, the delivery driver introduced a lot of the theoretical stuff as well because they, you know, had been a, a student quite recently, but to work those things through collectively in relation to other kinds of work. So I guess trying to see how it could go from being an individual PhD project to something more collective in future ones. And has this carried over? And I know you've got this kind of um, extension into things like digital labor and um, I guess, you know, what I think of as kind of creative industry stuff. And so has this carried through into things like your research on esports and um, I guess that kind of more digital mode of, uh, of work? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think of, of call centers as, as being a kind of digital work, um, of deliver and Uber of being kinds of digital work. But I also think it's interesting to look at the the other extreme forms of, of digital work that we find. So I have this project to, with professional video game players who compete in tournaments, uh, with people who stream uh, online on platforms like Twitch, to try and understand how digitalization is affecting uh, work more broadly. And you know, there are some interesting parallels that you find with, with streaming or programming. You know, there are a very few number of people who earn huge amounts of money, but there's a much, much larger number of precarious you know, people who might just be trying to break into making a living from this kind of activity. And then huge numbers of people who are never going to make it as professionals. And what do they do after that kind of that that dream of becoming successful and uh, and, and earning money from that, that activity? Is they're likely to do other kinds of digital work that are more like the Uber delivery or call centers. Um, and uh, so yeah, I would categorize that as kind of what is the future of work? You know, there are a number of, uh, of different things that are emerging. Um, and you know, I think the video games industry is a is a fascinating example of both kind of imma- more immaterial forms of labor, but also very deliberately material forms. You know, still the production of consoles and, uh, and parts and infrastructure and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I guess trying to understand how the world of work is changing more broadly. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Jamie Woodcock from the London School of Economics about working the phones, which is published by Pluto Press.